Well, good morning. Um, it's really good to be here um, and to see so many familiar faces and new faces too. And um, so nearly two years ago, I offered a talk here at the Fire Lotus and it was called Samsara Can Never Be Fixed. And um, now there's probably nobody here that would remember it except me. Um, but I finally got around to the sequel. And <laughs> so today I'm going to do the sequel to one that nobody heard. <laughs> so, um, and the sequel to Samsara Can Never Be Fixed is Samsara Can Always Be Practiced. So, <laughs> so both talks were inspired by a quote by Tibetan Buddhist teacher Tralag Kab. Kyabgon Rinpoche, uh, from his book on the Lojong teachings, which are the, the slogans um, that help us with our practice. Um, and what he wrote was, the best way to transform adversity is to resist personalizing our experiences and scripting them to our own narratives. If we try instead to become more outwardly oriented and resist the tendency to get enmeshed in our own dramas, we'll not only avoid the enormous suffering and pain that attends adversity, we'll start to develop a meaningful engagement with our lives. This is not just a practical way of dealing with adversity. It is a way of using the Dharma as an antidote to our problems. Whatever we do in a non-Dharmic way can only be a temporary solution. Um, because some, ah, here's, the, here's the quote, because samsara can never be fixed. <laughs> Trying to seek perfection through political, social, economic, or technological means will never work. The only real comfort and ease comes from taking refuge in the Dharma. So for those of you who are new to this practice, uh, samsara in Buddhism is the beginningless and endless cycle of repeated birth and death. Samsara is about a life that is unsatisfactory and painful, a life full of suffering that is perpetuated by the three poisons of aggression and desire and ignorance. So basically samsara takes all the richness and essential goodness and boundlessness of life and tries to squeeze it into a very small cage where we all suffer. For most of us, at least some of the time, samsara is a really big problem. We don't get what we want, so we suffer, or we do get we, what we want, but it's strangely dissatisfying. We experience strong, conflicting emotions, and we don't know how to deal with them. We don't know what to do with them. We may feel disconnected from, the, from those that we love. We suffer over this. We suffer over that. We are not at peace, and we're not at ease. So if samsara can never be fixed, what can we do? Well, we can practice. Samsara is practice. 
Fortunately, Buddhism just doesn't diagnose the problem of samsara. It offers us a way to practice it. It offers us a way to be joyful within the very heart of samsara. It offers us a way to be to develop a meaningful engagement with our lives. It offers us comfort and ease, although we may need to change some of our ideas about what comfort and ease truly mean to us at the deepest level. So as long as we are perpetuating and living a samsaric existence, we suffer. When we practice, we free ourselves and others, especially those who are closest to us, those whose lives we touch, we free ourselves and others from suffering. When we practice, we begin to understand the causes of suffering, not in an intellectual way, but at the very core of our being. It takes time and it takes practice, but as we deepen our understanding, we begin to experience joy and compassion right in the midst of samsara. When our practice is grounded in Buddhist perspectives, then all of our activity becomes practice. So, what are these Buddhist perspectives and how can we cultivate them? My teacher, Shugen Roshi, once said, spiritual practice begins in the moment that we no longer accept samsara. In other words, when we no longer accept our suffering and resolve to free ourselves from it. Now, none of us would be here if we weren't already weary of samsara, to some degree. And the more weary we are of samsara, of suffering, the more motivated we are to practice and to free ourselves from it. One way to cultivate weariness of samsara is to contemplate impermanence. So, for example, um, in I mean, this is a way that I have practiced impermanence. Um, in 2011, my city and my home in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, were destroyed by an earthquake. And so sometimes when I'm walking down the street here in New York or upstate where I live, and... Um, I get in touch with the part of me that really desperately wants to believe that the buildings around me, everything around me, is solid and permanent. It's it's very comforting to believe that. Um, so I get in touch with that part of me, and then I remind myself that a 150-year-old city can be reduced to rubble in 11 seconds. So that's how long it took. In 11 seconds, it destroyed an entire, an earthquake destroyed an entire city that had been there for 150 years. And, you know, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. Um, it was pretty horrific. People died. Um, I heard buildings collapse. I saw the fires. I felt it in my body. And yet, despite having been there and experiencing it all firsthand, I still have to remind myself that everything is impermanent. I mean, you would think that that lesson <laughs> would have sunk in. Uh, but it's just so easy and comforting to go back to sleep. 
Our habit of seeing the world as solid and fixed is so deeply entrenched and it's very seductive. And yet, in order to free ourselves from suffering, we must find a way to practice and see through this fundamental delusion. A little less dramatically, (laughs) we, we can practice impermanence by simply paying attention to the seasons, silently observing the integration and disintegration of all forms. So as I mentioned earlier, I live upstate near Zen Mountain Monastery, and there's a bird feeder on the balcony outside of my kitchen window. And mostly starlings come to visit, but we get the occasional red-winged blackbird or red-breasted woodpecker, which is always very exciting. And, you know, in the spring, uh, there were baby starlings, and now that it's summer, those babies are adolescents. And only a couple of months ago, they were born. And they wait on the deck, hopping around impatiently, uh, while their parents are up at the feeder and they drop seeds down to them. Um, by autumn, they will be full-grown and able to fight for their own spot at the feeder. Right now, they're too small, but things change. My balcony is overlooking a creek surrounded by trees, and although the trees are lush and green now, already I see chipmunks and squirrels squirreling squirreling around, (laughs) picking up seeds and nuts and hiding them away for the coming winter. The blackberry blossoms of early summer have given way to pink, unripe berries, And there are barely formed peaches in my neighbor's yard. They give promise to the rich harvest ahead. So many of us associate impermanence with loss, not gain. And yet all the positive potential in our life can only be realized because of impermanence. The whole point of bringing our awareness to impermanence is to put an end to suffering to cut through the delusions and distortions about reality that prevent us from living a life that is joyful and compassionate right here in the midst of samsara. To truly understand impermanence, we need to see it manifest in every moment, in every circumstance. That's why we practice. One thought stops, another thought arises. It may appear to us that there is a continuity, that it's all one thing. Um, But this is an illusion. One moment stops, another moment arises. Each moment is complete, lacking nothing. This moment truly is all that there is in the whole universe. There really is no other way but to practice it just as it is and to accept it just as it is. Contemplating impermanence in this way, we realize just how fragile everything is, how brief our life really is. Impermanence teaches us to treasure every moment of this precious human life. Another way to study impermanence is to contemplate death. We all know, at least intellectually, that we and everyone we know is going to die. 
it's not a question of if, it's when. But mostly we don't want to think about it. Uh, We don't want to talk about it. Many of us become awkward and uncomfortable just at the mention of death. And yet, if we want to be of service to the world, we can't back away. We have to... Um, we have to acknowledge death. If we want to be able to read the newspaper or, um, you know, watch the news without pulling away, without withdrawing, without shutting down, um, we really need to be able to look at our own death. And not as a frightening, scary thing, but as something that is just a natural part of living. So, sooner or later, I'm going to have to look at my own impermanence. (laughs) So this is why all schools of Buddhism have practices that bring us face-to-face with our own mortality. Nearly 30 years ago, when my father was very close to death, my sister and I were with him in the hospital room, in his hospital room. And he was heavily medicated, and he was in a lot of pain, And he couldn't move or speak. And the only way we could communicate with him was to hold his hand and ask him a question that could be answered by yes or no. And if he, if the answer was yes, he would squeeze once. If it was no, he would squeeze twice. So, you know, we were, I think we were getting bored. I'm sure he would have been happy for us to just be there with him. Uh, but we asked him, uh, if he wanted us to read to him. And so we got a couple of, um, you know, squeezes, very feeble squeezes. No, he didn't want us to read to him. And then we thought, okay, maybe he'll want us to sing to him because we used to enjoy, when we were, when we were children, we used to sing songs with him and he loved that. And we did too. So we asked if, um, if he wanted us to sing to him. And we got a slightly stronger no this time. <laughs> So, um, so not knowing what to do next, my sister, um, who was at that time living in the Toronto Zen Center, uh, she said, do you want us to chant? And to our surprise, we got a really strong yes. <laughs> so we started chanting Shosaimyo, which, um, it's a Durrani for averting disasters, removing obstacles, and bringing peace. And um, so we, we chanted that this morning. It was the last chant that we did in the service, the, the last sutra. And um, so anyway, we started chanting Shosaimyo. And my sister's standing on one side of the bed, the hospital bed, and I'm standing on the other side of him. And we're chanting Shosaimyo over and over and over again. And after about 20 minutes or so, um, my sister and I both simultaneously looked up um, with tears streaming down our faces and turned our heads and looked at the heart rate monitor and watched it do one last beat and go flat. So how did we know the exact moment that he died? How did we know that? Well, we knew because one moment 
we were looking at our father, who we knew and loved, and the next moment we were looking at a corpse. And one moment he was alive, that moment stopped. The next moment arose, he was dead. That's a pretty big change, but it all happened in just one moment. Our whole life is like that. Everything happens in just one moment. My first teacher, Daido Roshi, used to say, if you miss the moment, you miss your life, your whole life. I like to think of it as it's, it's like watching a movie on six millimeter or uh, 16 millimeter or eight millimeter film and it's running through a projector and it looks like continuous movement. Our eyes and our brains are utterly convinced that it's a continuous flow from one scene to the next. But when we slow the projector down, what we see, or if we stop it altogether, we see that it's a series of discrete frames, each one complete in itself. One frame stops, another frame arises. When we practice Zazen, we, we slow things down. We start to get a sense of how this is just the way things work. We experience it for ourselves. One moment arises. We vow to fully engage this moment. It stops. Another moment arises. We fully engage, engage this moment. It stops. And if we stop the projector altogether, even if it's just for a nanosecond, what we discover is a vast, joyful, boundless space begins to open up between the frames. It's in this space between the frames that our relationship with samsara changes. Each night in the zendo, we hear the liturgist chant. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken. Why should we strive to awaken? Because we are impermanent and everything around us is impermanent. Because whatever we do in a non-dharmic way can only be a temporary solution because samsara can never be fixed. Waking up to that reality transforms our lives. Charlotte Jokobeck taught that practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Wealth, fame, power, relationships, modern medicine, technology, none of these things can protect us from suffering. Samsaric existence is driven by our futile grasping at temporary solutions and by our belief that maybe this time they will actually work. The Buddha taught that no one can be given something, anything, 
any circumstance, any relationship, to take away suffering. The Buddha taught that the first noble truth is dukkha, suffering, the nature of life with all its sorrows and joys, its imperfection and disappointments, its impermanence, its instability, is suffering. Our practice is to understand this clearly and completely. Then, at some point, the penny will drop and we'll say to ourselves, I've suffered enough. And our spiritual practice goes deeper. We no longer accept our suffering and we resolve to free ourselves from it. We begin to engage our lives in a more meaningful way, moment by moment. When practicing within samara, samara, samsara, another Buddhist perspective we can ground ourselves in is to cultivate love and compassion. Practicing loving kindness um, helps us to experience joy within samsara. Compassion for ourselves and others is an antidote to, for pain, hurt, difficult memories. It allows grudges and negative emotions to simply dissolve. Our meditation practice calms the mind so we can cultivate kinder thoughts and create more gentle actions. What we get out of practice is being more awake, more alive, and more loving. We begin to see into the nature of suffering, and its hold over us begins to relax and soften. The Buddha taught in the, uh, the Metta Sutra, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness all over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So how can we cultivate this boundless heart? the one that cherishes all living beings, radiating kindness all over the entire world? Well, it starts with this heart. Our compassion for all living beings begins with our own tender heart. It begins when we truly love and accept ourselves, just as we are, without judgment, without self-hatred, without self-aggrandizement. It begins when we pay attention to the ever-subtle, ever-changing, subtle song of our heart and gently allow it to sing us a song of freedom. Life is too short to harbor anger or ill will towards ourselves or towards anyone else. When I was growing up, the story that my culture and my family told me, the story that I myself, that uh, that I told myself, 
was that there was something fundamentally wrong with me and that the only way I could fix it was to be totally perfect in everything that I did. I couldn't make any mistakes whatsoever. None. Any mistake, no matter how small, would draw attention to my fundamental badness. From this viewpoint, whenever anything went wrong, it had to be my fault. How sad. (laughs) It's impossible to go through life without making mistakes. That's how we learn. (laughs) And yet, that was my conditioning, and my parents' conditioning, and their parents before them. But whatever our pattern, I mean, each one of you will have your own pattern of conditioning. Um, whatever that pattern of conditioning and self-delusion might be, Buddhism teaches, some, teaches us something radically different. Again and again, we hear in the teachings, no creature ever fails to cover the ground on which they stand. We are perfect and complete, just as we are. I am perfect and complete, just as I am. And so are you, and you, and you, and everyone here. When our conditioned beliefs run so deep, we have to bring more than just an intellectual understanding to them. We have to practice. Samsara can never be fixed because nothing is broken. Nothing is wrong. It's nobody's fault. We are perfect and complete, just as we are. And yet our samsaric wounds can run as deep as the ocean, and at times our mountain of regrets can seem insurmountable. How do we practice this? A thought arises. We see it just as it is. We see that not only is it all of samsara, it is all of our basic goodness as well. This thought stops. Another thought arises. It stops. Another thought arises. In this way, we see deeply into the nature of our suffering. And out of this seeing arises an abiding compassion for ourselves and for all beings in the midst of samsara. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Samsara can never be fixed. I vow to put an end to it. Bokusan Nishiari, in his commentary on Dogen's Genjo Koen, wrote, If we raise the thought of a hungry ghost, we take the path of the hungry ghosts. If we raise the thought of an Ashura, we take the path of the fighting spirits. It's not that the Buddha handmade the path of the hungry ghosts or the fighting spirits. It's not that hell was created by King Yama and his court. You put yourself on trial and send yourself where you choose to go. 
I'm going to repeat that. You put yourself on trial and send yourself where you choose to go. So, in the midst of samsara, what path will you choose? Our compassion needs to be bigger than our insanity. (laughs) Lama John McCransky writes, To be free from samsara is to be freed from the self-centered point of view, the fundamental delusion at the heart of the problem. To be freed from delusion is to awaken to our true nature, Buddha nature, the ground of deep peace. To be liberated into that ground is to unleash the vast powers of love and compassion for all others who are caught in the same delusion. When we are caught in a self-centered dream, we suffer. When we suffer, everyone suffers. When I live my life from the assumption that I exist as a separate entity, that myself exists, then I become the most important person. So whether I see myself as the best or the worst, it's still all about me. And from this place of self-obsession, how can I possibly cherish all living beings? The self's claim of importance is the engine driving samsara. And I can say with all sincerity and from personal experience that this is the greatest obstacle to awakening to a healthier healthier way of being. Samsara can never be fixed, nor does it need to be. What we can change is our relationship to samsara. We can develop a meaningful engagement with our lives within samsara. We can find genuine comfort, ease, and joy by taking refuge in the practice and in the teachings. Practice is a gentle, penetrating light that over time clears away the heavy fog of self-centeredness, revealing the open and boundless heart that was there all along. Practice in the midst of samsara is a gentle process. We don't have to be good at it. We don't have to achieve anything or look for any particular result. Nothing is broken. We don't have to fix anything. Gradually, as we practice, we feel more joy, more comfort and ease more appreciation for our basic goodness. All we have to do is gently bring our attention to the experience in this moment of our body, our heart, and our mind, moment after moment after moment. We train in being present. So... Since last Thursday evening, um, there's been, I think this is the first ever poetry festival that's going on upstate at Zen Mountain Monastery, and um, 
I stopped by on Friday night and went to one of the events, and it was fabulous. It's really, really well attended. They very quickly sold out all of the residential spaces, and a lot of people are coming in just for the day for the different sessions. And people seem to be really having a good time. So, um, so in that spirit, I thought I would finish by reciting a poem. <laughs> Not my own. Uh, this one is by Ursula Le Guin. So, and it's called The Finding. A woman slowly opens a carved box. She has come to the dark tower. She has found the hidden room and quieted the hound that guards it. She has picked the rusty locks and pushed open the reluctant door and seen the box among the shadows on its stand. She lifts it. It weighs little in her hand. She hesitates by the fire screen, hearing the hound whimper, Do not open it! The woven peacocks in the curtain scream, To wake will break! To wake will break the dream! She draws her breath. She slowly lifts the lid. Stones and darkness disappear. Nothing is there but her, the grass, the silent, shining air.